Welcome to the Sticks and Stones podcast, bringing you interviews with people from across the globe who are changing the face of sexual health for the better. This is the place to hear about new approaches and initiatives in sexual health, best practice, challenges, and to meet some of the people who are driving change from around the world. My name is Nick Mallon, and I administer the SDI International Exchange, or Sticks. I hope you enjoy today's conversation, and please subscribe to receive future episodes. We've got a great episode with Dr. Ali Khan, Dean at the University of Nebraska Medical School, and a great backstory with a background at the CDC and work for the World Health Organization. So let's hear the conversation with Dr. Khan. So Dr. Khan, a real pleasure to, to speak to you again. How are you? I'm doing extremely well. Thank you very much. So would you like to, to start us off, Dr. Khan, to give a little bit of background into your current role and um, previous roles and, and a little, little bit about yourself for the listeners to, to, to get to know you? Oh, glad to. So... I'm Ali Khan. I'm a medical epidemiologist, and I'm currently dean of the College of Public Health here at the University of Nebraska Medical Center uh, in the center of the U.S. for all of our listeners who may not be uh, here in the U.S. I'm born and uh, raised in Brooklyn, New York. Um, went to college and med school in Brooklyn, New York. Did my residency training as an internist and pediatrician at the University of uh, Michigan, and then I had the pleasure to join CDC for about 25 years, where most of my career was focused for, on um, emerging infectious diseases, hemorrhagic fever. So I was responsible for outbreaks due to Ebola, Rifali fever, Marburg, anthrax, all over the world. And as I tell people, at some point I had to grow up. And I led CDC's, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the U.S. National Public Health Agency, around uh, malaria, infectious diseases, and then um, what we call health security, which I had helped establish in the 2000s for protection against all public health emergencies. Uh, and after completing my stint at the Centers for Disease Control, I retired as an assistant surgeon general and had the absolute delight of coming here to Nebraska, uh, where now I get to teach students, uh, get to do some research, advocate for the college and continue to do global work around emerging infections. Uh, I was, for example, just in Uganda for six weeks back in October of November of 2022, helping with their Ebola outbreak. Thank you very much, Dr. Khan. A fascinating background. And uh, Nebraska might, must be quite different for a child of, of Brooklyn. How how have you found that? It's actually not as rural as you may think. The, I live in the city of Omaha, which is almost about a million people in the larger metropolitan statistical area, and I love it. Uh, this is home. There's a really great work ethos out here in the Midwest. People are humble, hardworking, very kind, and extremely collaborative, which I have loved here. It's actually what brought me here. So my passion after being at CDC was to think about how do you bring public health and healthcare closer together for improved health outcomes? 
we know the medical model, at least here in the United States, has failed us. And despite the fact that we spend twice as much on health care as any other industrialized nation, we have worse indicators than any industrialized nation. Uh, actually, some of them are appalling when you look at infant mortality or maternal mortality here in the United States. And so when I interviewed here 10 years ago, uh, it was completely evident that there would be no issues working across the state with our healthcare facilities. And uh, we do it every day. I have one of my favorite projects right now is a maternal child health project that includes all of the insurers uh, of healthcare in Nebraska, all of the large providers, obviously the state health department, uh, and uh, we're making a difference every day in ensuring that women get early care. Do you feel optimistic about the future? Do you feel it's heading in the right direction in terms of overcoming some of those disease burdens that are hitting the the country in a more acute way than, than elsewhere? I absolutely feel optimistic about the future of health in the United States. And not that we can't always do better. And I think that, you know, Americans are usually defined by individualism or American exceptionalism. But I think we're also defined by making things and continuing to make things better and better systems. So while our response could have been better, without a doubt, for COVID, you know, we did come together and funded uh, Operation Warp Speed that led to this new vaccines that now are available and saved millions of lives, billions of lives, potentially uh, worldwide as we continue. So I'm always optimistic about the future, optimistic about new approaches as we think about disease burden, uh, and optimistic about the future of public health and the role of prevention uh, within our communities. And tell me, Dr. Khan, a little bit about your current role being the dean at the university. It's something that we've all heard of, you know, a dean of a university. But I think very few people actually know on a day-to-day basis what the job entails and also the link back into healthcare. So... I'm sure our listeners would be very interested to to understand your your remit and and what you're doing within that role. Uh, you're going to have to stop me because I love talking about my role of being a dean here at the university. Again, in a wonderful city. So, as a dean of a college of public health, so we educate students to be the next guardians of public health, and our primary degrees are masters of public health and doctorates of public health. We also uh, provide PhDs uh, for those who are going to take a research bent in the traditional fields uh, here at the university. So if you think about biostatistics, epidemiology, health promotion, health services, research, environmental and occupational health. We have a very strong focus here at the University of Nebraska Medical Center on emerging infections and uh, high hazard pathogens. The first patients who came to the United States with Ebola during the 2014 outbreak came here to our university, to our biocontainment unit. Uh, the first patients with COVID from China or and one of the cruise ships uh, came here to our university and our community. And we serve as the network hub for a lot of these health security issues here. Um, in the state. So those are, that's uh, our big focus in education. Now, I'm a big fan of education. I have way too many degrees, uh, but I always believe in education with the purpose, right? What is the purpose 
of education. And so, yes, our students go on to become brilliant researchers, but most of our students go into practice. And so we like to ensure that our students are ready for practice, the practice of public health, you know, the work we do collectively, the art and science of that work, and ensuring that we have healthier communities everywhere and everyone, recognizing that the I guess the foundation or the heart of public health is social justice. And then our science to think about what are the best approaches for public health problems. So colleges of public health have faculty who do research in those areas. We do research all the way from the bench to community participatory research, but we are heavily weighted towards implementation research, research within our communities. For people who know me, they know that a common saying for me is, I will trade one good study that helps us understand how people stop smoking as opposed to 10 studies that tell me smoking is bad for me, right? So I got that part down, that the smoking is bad for me. But, you know, what are good studies that tell us how do we work with our community to ensure that they stop smoking and be healthier? So those are the our key functions and then a whole lot of service activities so we do a lot of service activities support nonprofits support the local health departments across the state the region uh, in our work and we have a lot of work in that nature again with education research and and service uh, nationally my job as a dean is a mix of an administrative role and a faculty role so i'm a professor of epidemiology so I teach every year, which I love, because the only, I mean, I tell people if all I wanted to do research or administration, there would be other jobs uh, I could have done. So I love teaching, uh, and I teach once a year. I love my research activities, and the advantage of being a dean at a public college of public health uh, compared to being at CDC, which is an amazing institution, is that I can do a mix of things. So I can go anywhere from discussing Medicaid reform, to maternal child mortality, to infectious diseases, to um, how do we address obesity within our community. So it's a wide gamut of things that I personally work on or discuss or promote as a dean. And then a big chunk of obviously being a dean is the promoting the college and our students uh, to our philanthropic and other communities to ensure that they have the resources they need to continue to do what they do. I'll leave you, I, I told you this would go on, I could go on and on. I'll leave you with one, one story from just yesterday, right? So back in October, we had a contingent of emergency medical physicians, public health practitioners uh, who came from Ukraine uh, as part of an open world mission. And after those discussions, we ended up collaborating with the Ukrainian Deputy Minister of Health or the Chief Sanitary Officer to say, how do we better train your public health practitioners and clinicians around emergency preparedness as an area where we can help with the science and the best current practices. And so we have a cohort uh, funded by scholarships starting this fall of students that we will be training uh, in better public health practice around uh, health emergencies. So there you go, something, uh, yet another thing that we have the ability to do here at the college. It's wonderful and that passion comes across and, and and to put it in a nutshell, Dr. Khan, it sounds like not only there is scientific rigor to the studies, but it really is about having that public health DNA running through people, that focus on the community and bringing good people out into the world for, for want of a better way of saying it. 
Oh, absolutely correct. People well-grounded in the latest public health science um, who understand what it means to practice public health, which has dramatically changed, Nick, and hopefully I'm not the first one telling you that uh, in this sort of post-pandemic area, which is that as an epidemiologist, people used to tell me, you know, what what is the first sort of things you do when you prepare communities or as you support public health. And so, you know, I would, my go-to was, well, we need to make sure we have good detection systems. You know, so, you know, epidemiology laboratories where I would always go to, that's changed. You know, I think our responsibility as public health officials uh, and individuals and champions is first around trust. Everything we do is a function of trust in our communities, and we need to ensure that we're better at that. And uh, so, you know, that's reflected now in the training of our students of, you know, how, do, how are we better communicators? How are we better educators? How are we better advocates? So that is, I think, sort of the new public health. Long may that continue. Now, just pivoting down into sexually transmitted infections, which is the core of our, our podcast and what most of our listeners tune in on. Tell me a little bit about the, the STI rates that you're seeing in Omaha and, and Nebraska in comparison to the rest of the country. So the STI rates actually in Omaha amongst the highest uh, in the United States. We have a strong urban core in the U.S., and there's a significant number of activities in Nebraska, uh, specifically in Omaha, our large city, to try to decrease uh, rates of STIs and infections and diseases, um, mainly amongst the youth. Gonorrhea infections, uh, 140 per 100,000. Chlamydia infections, obviously a lot higher, almost 800 per 100,000. Also with health disparity, that we is very common here uh, in the United States with the African Americans or blacks being almost twice as likely or more to have these uh, STDs. Very worrying. And are you seeing any specific initiatives that are being run? Or is there anything from your perspective that you're getting involved in to try and reduce the, the burden of STIs? Besides having very high rates here in our urban core, you know, there is that disparity. So African-Americans, I think, twice as likely as Native uh, Americans or indigenous youth and uh, seven times, I believe, as likely as white youths. And so the specific initiatives have been campaigns to help especially young people understand what those rates are and then what their options are. And we started a campaign in 2015 called the Anyone Can Get One campaign that highlighted young people to get the message out there. And this was really about shifting the focus of services and resources uh, in our community from being sort of adult-focused around youth needs, right? And so there was a lot of youth feedback as we thought about developing these ads. uh, And um, a lot of the initiatives actually as part of continuing here in our community are actually youth-led. The advantage of a city of a million people uh, and it being Nebraska, it's easy to bring in all the partners within the community as we think about providing additional training, as we think about testing, as we think about condom distribution, as we think about distribution of larks. So that continues to be effective in improving awareness uh, and uptake of services. It's just hard to show, though, 
that it's really led to any dramatic decline in rates across our community. But I don't think that's just a challenge here in Omaha. I think that's a challenge across the United States when you think about STI infections. Absolutely. And beyond the United States as well. Oh, good point. Yes, <laughs> beyond the United States uh, as well. You see similar trends everywhere, despite numerous initiatives and a lot of lot of good intentions. Yeah, exactly. And it's trying to get across the fact of the uh, long-term health effects of these infections, not just uh, HIV, which, uh, you know, fortunately we have treatment for these days, but the long-term health effects around pregnancy or of getting pregnant, obviously sterility, or other complications of pregnancy uh, if you have a sexually transmitted infection in your youth. Uh, but I'm thinking about, you know, things that have even immediate impact, not just necessarily to you, for example, syphilis and the market r- uh, rise in congenital syphilis here in the United States, I believe sevenfold higher in the last 10 years from a about 350 cases now to about almost 2,600 cases here in the United States of congenital syphilis, which to me is always a never event. Another complication I didn't mention was obviously because of this continued uh, circulation uh, of these uh, pathogens, we're also seeing a lot more of antimicrobial resistance issues. And as time goes on, these become less and less benign, even for just an acute infection. But going back to syphilis, seems to be a uniquely American phenomenon. It's mainly in the southern part of the United States that is often challenged with the public health issues, not just around STIs, but around chronic diseases and other health uh, conditions. And I call it a never event because there's so many different opportunities to intervene to make sure that you never have a child born with congenital uh, syphilis. And Again, it's also so easy to treat as you find these cases. So, you know, try to, you know, multiple recommendations to test multiple times during pregnancy, including when people come into the emergency room or pregnant women come into urgent care centers, uh, test post-pregnancy. And then obviously if you're positive, not just to treat you, but to treat your partner so you don't get reinfected. So there's lots of great public health measures and recommendations in place and yet still we're seeing this increase is it about funding is it about focus is it about getting to underserved communities what would be the main measure that you could potentially be doing above and beyond what's happening at the moment i think what we can do is better execute on what we know works recognizing, uh, as you articulated very nicely, that this is about funding and focus uh, and about the continued health disparities here in the United States. So, for example, assuring that when a woman is pregnant that this is top of mind no matter who sees her or where she's seen, right? So that would be something that would help. Uh, Some places have actually even started like little mini syphilis clinics within ERs because that may be the first time they see uh, a woman who's pregnant uh, or she may have been missed during the routine system. Uh, You can also tie it to reimbursement issues um, around uh, for in the United States, approximately 50% of births are taking care of the state-based health insurance system called Medicaid. Others are private insurance 
And then I think that usually covers almost everybody. But, you know, how can you maybe tie that to reimbursement, right? If you want to get, if clinicians want to get reimbursed, there's got to be clear documentation of having uh, a um, negative syphilis test. So there's lots of different ways to approach this. I think this does get to focus. Yes, public health funding has been dramatically cut for these activities. Uh, public health, uh, we've lost public health individuals as the course of this outbreak. Many were redirected to other activities, so we do need more public health professionals um, dedicated to this. But there is a lot of money in the health system, and that money should be used to drive better prevention activities. So again, going back to my earlier comment about how does public health and health care work better for improved care of individuals that should roll up to improved care of society. Yeah, the importance that you stress on prevention as well, which makes the current debate and judges down in Texas talking about not funding prevention absolutely the wrong course to take, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Prevention is the best buy. It will always be uh, the best buy for our society. We just need to think about how do we better bake that into our systems the way we do for so many other things? Most people don't think about the role of public health when they turn on their tap in the morning and drink a glass of water. Uh, don't think about whether their milk is pasteurized. Don't think about when they have a, go to a restaurant for a meal at lunch that they're going to get an E. coli infection. And so, so much of public health is baked into our daily activities. But for the harder things, we really do need to think about how does public health better engage our communities to help them understand that role of prevention and staying healthy um, as opposed to then sick care uh, and the consequences of getting sick? It works at every, at every level. So tell me, Dr. Khan, you've been involved in a number of international development projects. Just how you got into that and some of the projects that you were involved in. I've been responding to outbreaks for almost 30 years now. I still serve as a member on the steering committee for the World Health Organization's Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network called CORN um, that helps supply responders for preparedness and um, in public health emergencies worldwide. And even though I am the dean, I guess the dean also gives you a lot of flexibility in what you do. And so every other year or so, I will go and help respond to some sort of global outbreak uh, in 2014, even though I had just joined here as dean, I responded twice in Sierra Leone to the Ebola outbreaks. In Sierra Leone, I responded to measles and COVID in the South Pacific uh, to a diphtheria outbreak uh, amongst the Rohingya um, and that genocide uh, due to the Myanmar Burmese government. And then uh, most recently, I said to Ebola uh, again. It's interesting how the lessons from my work in these outbreaks uh, in East Africa, how those played out at a national level in the United States and worldwide and other countries when we too were confronted with a pandemic and often we saw so much misinformation and disinformation that characterizes many of these outbreaks that we see. So Ebola is clearly a scary disease. We don't want people to get Ebola. But the science is well-defined, right? We know exactly how people get infected, you know, person to person, very often within healthcare settings is how people get defined, uh, get infected. We know how to prevent 
disease with a mix of quarantine uh, and isolation so other people don't get infected. But the challenge, again, comes down to trust and uh, communications uh, and all sorts of great coordination, which was my role in Uganda back in uh, the fall of uh, 2022 was to bring together the international community uh, in support of the Ministry of Health, which obviously always has the lead role. So bring together all the international partners, support the Ministry of Health for the resources they needed to help respond to the outbreak. And we were fortunate that that outbreak, I think, was cut short at it was less than 200 cases uh, due to this great, you know, uh, national response supplemented by international partners. So, so Dr. Khan, before we, we, we wrap up the podcast, I've also heard about some of the work that you're doing with baseball, which again, for an international audience is, is something very American, <laughs> but tell me about some of your, your work there. So during the pandemic, um, I had the opportunity uh, on behalf of the university to serve as a consultant for a number of large corporations uh, as they thought about how did they navigate the pandemic to protect their uh, employees. Um, and one of those corporations was Major League Baseball. So we had a team here at the university that advised Major League Baseball on how to start back play while making sure that they were protecting not just the players critically, but also the umpires and others who were related uh, to the game. And we initially set up an elaborate structure with various tiers of individuals with various levels of protection. Uh, and that proved to be very effective in minimizing infections. I must say I was so impressed with the commissioner of baseball. So this is a multi-billion you know, billion dollar industry uh, in the United States. Uh, and he, he was very clear that, yes, obviously he wanted his business uh, then, uh, to start again, as did the players and everybody else, but he was like, not at the expense of health. And I, I was just so impressed that his number one focus was the safety of those individuals, the umpires, everybody else involved uh, in the game. And then when you had such strong backing, that made it easier to put in these measures and make sure that we could get the game started again, which was really important from a morale issue. So baseball is sort of bookend by, for us, the National Basketball Association, where we also actually provided support for them, uh, a little bit more narrow in that case around genomics testing of the virus for them. But in the U.S., most people remember the start of the outbreak, essentially uh, with canceling games in the um, National Basketball Association and uh, the WHO Secretary General Tedros's uh, announcement of it being a pandemic. So baseball or major league sports uh, played a major role uh, here in the U.S. They also played a major role in Europe, where a large number of cases are associated with an initial soccer match or football match. We had a couple um, in the in the UK. There was a big horse race in a in a soccer game where supporters from Spain came over, and that was uh, tracked to an actual rise in the in the infections in in the UK. So as we wrap up, Doctor Khan, I, I was just thinking you're a little bit like a detective who sort of shows up at the door. Delighted to see you and a pleasure to have you, you know, to share your company. But it probably means there is some sort of 
epidemic <laughs> in the in the area. So <laughs> I'm not always a dark shadow, <laughs> but fair enough. Uh, if I if I show up, it means there's something going on that's bad that requires my level of uh, expertise. But hopefully that also means that there's a solution very shortly. Very much so. Very much so. So just to wrap up, if I was to ask you, what would the one bit of advice be? And I'm sure as a dean at a university, this will, this will come naturally. But to young people entering the field, what, what would you see as the, the, the key point to get across? That does come naturally as a dean at this point. Uh, so I think for too long in public health, we have focused on the health part of public health and maybe have almost medicalized public health. So my bit of advice to people in the field of public health is let's start focusing a little bit more on the public part of that public health phrase and how are we better at engaging our communities that we work in and with and are of uh, every day to regain that trust and help them understand that prevention is the best strategy. Thank you so much. So we've looped the loop and we're, we're back at prevention. Always with me. That was fantastic, Dr. Khan. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nick. It was a real pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to the Sticks and Stones podcast today. And if you do have a moment to rate and review us, it really does help other people to find this content. And remember, you can also follow us on Twitter under Sticks STI. That's Sticks S-T-I-I-X, S-T-I. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Sticks and Stones is produced by Birdline Media.